Well, without further ado, it is a great honor, and I, I don't say that lightly. It's a great honor to turn this service and the pulpit over to our dear brother, Timothy Barton, his uh, father's David Barton, who's had an impact on my life, and, and now his son carrying the same, really, mantle and anointing as his father. They're patriots, and they're, they're calling a nation back to, back to the Word of God. You will be impacted this morning by what you experienced through his ministry. The first time I heard his father preach, I couldn't help but stand at my feet and begin to weep for America, who's just really backslidden. But I believe that God's raising up a remnant. Do you believe that? Would you say amen if you believe it? Amen. I believe God's raising up a remnant of people that are going to return and a city on a hill, what America used to be called a city on a hill, that we would be a city on a hill again. Please put your hands together for David Barton. Praise God. Oh, pardon me. We're good. We're good. Timothy, I got it. Timothy. Everybody say Timothy Barton. It's just a special morning for you, Pastor. We're, we're excited to be part of it. You guys, it's good to be with you. Y'all have a seat. Um, I, I'm excited to be here uh, coming up from Texas, and I want to I jump into what I want to talk about this morning. I want to start with a Bible verse. Uh, actually, it's a little slick up here, Pastor. I don't know what happened. <laughs> it really is. There's the anointing, I'll, we'll, we'll presume. Um, Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessings of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. And, and, and there's a notion that when God blesses you, sometimes... God, every time God's blessings are, are something beneficial and profitable, but sometimes God's blessings, because it adds no sorrow to us, it's easy to overlook. And let me just give you an example. Uh, one of the founding fathers, his name was Dr. Benjamin Rush. And Dr. Benjamin Rush was uh, uh, really a, a, a prolific founding father, prolific writer. He was considered one of the three most notable founding fathers. But one of the things he wrote in one of his journals, he said, I'm so grateful for every time that I've not fallen down the stairs. And I read that and I thought, well, first of all, I agree. I'm grateful for, uh, Lord willing, this morning, not falling downstairs. But it was interesting. He pointed out, he started thanking God for things that I've never thought to thank God for. Things that we take for granted. And it, and it really struck me, you know, sometimes God's blessings, we just take for granted. We forget some of God's greatest blessings. The fact that you drove this morning, you didn't get in a car wreck and die on your way to church, blessing. There's a lot of blessings of the Lord that sometimes we just overlook God's blessings. And that's definitely true when you look at our nation. Our nation has been so blessed by God and it's so easy to overlook the blessings. We take a lot of things for granted that really we should be looking directly back and saying, God, thank you for it. Well, in 238 years, we've been operating as a free and independent nation in America. In 238 years, we've only had one constitution. We enjoy more stability than any nation that's ever existed before us. We have more prosperity in America. We have more freedoms and liberty. We are an incredibly blessed nation. And you know, it used to be, we, we actually taught in public schools in early America what it was that made America a really special and different place. You know, the, the, the underlying principle we used to teach was the reason America is different was because of the Bible. Now, that's, that would be a very interesting thing to say today in public schools. Uh, most people would have major problems, even Christians, because, well, the Bible in schools, we're not sure about that. It used to be so well understood. What made America different, unique, and special was the Bible. But today we've largely forgotten the impact of the Bible on our nation, but even just basic things like our English language. We don't really think about the Bible shaping our English language, but do you know there's 257 idioms that we still use today that come directly from the Bible? 
It's amazing. In fact, I'm a big sports guy. I love watching sports. And by the way, it's a little weird that sports happens in the morning up here. I, I, I wasn't sure what was going on. Everybody back home and they're texting me scores and I'm going, it's, it's in the morning. How are their scores happening? It's weird. I, I feel like we should delay coverage in Alaska. I don't know why, but it's in the morning. However, I was watching sports a couple weeks ago and I heard one of the commentators talking about a coach who was a Christian coach, but he said, you know, that guy's just a salt of the earth. Where did we come up with the phrase salt of the earth? That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Or he talked about there, there was a football team who was, who was really overrated and they were having to play another team. And he says, you know, this is really gonna be judgment day for that team. We're gonna see what they're made of. Where'd you come up with the phrase judgment day? You know, it's amazing. You start looking at how many phrases we use in the English language that come directly from scripture and some phrases we don't even think about coming from the Bible. For instance, phrases like by the skin of your teeth. Well, here's my two cents. A leopard can't change his spots. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. These are signs of the times. Well, that's a thorn in my flesh from the cradle to the grave. That's handwriting on the wall. Well, that's just a fly in the ointment. Things that we would not generally think about being Bible verses, it's amazing how many things that are even in our English language that come directly from the Bible. And by the way, it is interesting. You ought to just start noticing next time you're at Lowe's or Target or the grocery store, just listen, because you're going to hear people saying things and you'll think that's from the Bible. And by the way, it might be a fun ministry open door opportunity for you. You hear somebody say a phrase, hey, did you know you were quoting the Bible? I mean, it could be a good first step. You could have talked to him about the Lord. Now, you do need to be careful. Because they might say, I didn't know I was quoting the Bible. What was I quoting? And then you need to know what it was they were quoting. So that is important. But you know, it's amazing. We used to understand the influence and impact of the Bible. In fact, in previous generations, founding father, President John Quincy Adams, his dad was John Adams, but he went on to become the sixth president of the United States. This is what he said about the Bible. He said, with regard to the history contained in the Bible, it's not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it, as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. You know, that's a lot different culture than what we have in America today. Because in America today, it's not normal that everybody knows the Bible. It's special if, if someone does. It's, it's, it's actually unusual. If you find somebody that knows the Bible, I, I was a youth pastor for 10 years. And if one of my kids knew the Bible, I was high five and I was hugging. I was so proud of them. And the reason was because nobody knows the Bible. So if I had a kid that knew the Bible, that's special. That's not the way it used to be in early America. It used to be that everybody knows the Bible. It's not impressive to know the Bible. Everybody knows the Bible. And the reason was the Bible was such the center and foundation, the fabric of what we did in America. We used to understand this. President Teddy Roosevelt explained it this way. He said the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our civic and social life that it would be impossible for us to figure what life would be if these teachings, meaning the teachings of the Bible, were removed. What we have in America has been so shaped by the Bible. Why do we have the freedom of religion in America? The Bible. Why do you have the rights of conscience in America? The Bible. Why do we have a Republican form of government in America? The Bible. Why do we have a free market system in America? The Bible. Why do we have a public school education system in America? The Bible. We can keep going. It's all the Bible. And this is what he said. If you remove the teachings of the Bible, you wouldn't even recognize America anymore. As Americans today, we have so lost sight of the impact of the Bible, we don't recognize that all we've enjoyed is because of the Bible. In fact, we're seeing a lot of problems today, and it's because of the lack of the Bible in our nation. We have forgotten, even as Christians, the significance and the impact of the Bible that used to be readily understood. In fact, President Roosevelt explained the impact of the Bible in the history of our nation. He said, in the formative days of the Republic, the directing influence the Bible exercised upon the fathers of the nation is conspicuously evident, meaning it's obvious. 
He said, this is so obvious. The Bible is what shaped our nation. He explained, we cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible is occupied in shaping the advances of the republic. Now imagine, he said, you can't read history and not see how the Bible has shaped our nation. Now, I, I would probably argue today you could read most history and not see how the Bible shaped our nation, but it's because we don't talk about it anymore, and most people have no idea. They've never heard the Bible shaped what we did. That's a foreign thought to us, but we used to understand that very well. Let me give you an example. Benjamin Franklin, today considered one of the least religious founding fathers. Well, when we were writing the Constitution in 1787, we had the Constitutional Convention. At the Constitutional Convention, when we had those delegates there, we had delegates, there were 13 different states at the time, and the states, they were all divided. Because you had some states had a lot of population, some that were really small, some that wanted big government, some that wanted small government. When they got together, they argued nonstop about the way government should operate. Go figure, people argue about government. It, it, good thing we don't deal with that anymore. Well, they're arguing about the way government should operate. And after four and a half weeks, they were so frustrated, disgusted with each other that people began to leave. We hadn't written a constitution, and people were going, you know what, it's never going to happen. We might as well just be 13 individual nations, 13 individual colonies, because we can never work out and get this done together. In the midst of this frustration, Benjamin Franklin, God, he was considered the old man at the convention. He got up and gave the longest speech he gave during the Constitution Convention. It was June 28, 1787. And this is what he was telling the guys. He was trying to propose a solution. This was his proposed solution. He said, in this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth, and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understanding? Now, Franklin is, is suggesting we need to pray, and he explains why. He said, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or, or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire could rise without his aid? We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe without his concurring aid, we shall see in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, and we shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and it's a blessing on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Now, Benjamin Franklin has just told all the other guys, guys, I think the reason we're having a problem is we haven't prayed. Because remember, when we, when we started with, with the very first Congress, 74, we had prayer, we prayed every day. Remember, God answered our prayers and it worked really well. Do we think we can come together now and succeed without God's help? Maybe we should go back and ask God for help. Let me just point out, when the least religious founding father is the one having to give you spiritual counsel and advice, that's not real good. However, when the least religious founding father is the one that chews you out for not being spiritual enough, that's pretty impressive of the group. When the least religious goes, guys, we need to be more spiritual. That's a pretty impressive group. Now, let me go ahead and also illustrate he. I just quoted 14 sentences from him. That speech he gave was a little longer. But in 14 sentences, I want to ask you a question. How many Bible verses did you recognize that I just read to you? Now, I want you to internalize it. I don't want you to say it out loud. Just think about it. How many Bible verses did you recognize? And I'm asking a group of presumably Christians. So as Christians, we base our life on the Word of God, the Bible. So probably we've read the Bible before. So how many Bible verses did you as a Christian who bases your life on the Bible, how many Bible verses did you recognize? 
In 14 sentences, he quoted 14 verses. That's a pretty good ratio for the least religious founding father, by the way. What's amazing about this is, is most Americans cannot recognize 14 Bible verses, but they're all there. Why in the world don't we know 14 Bible verses? Well, largely because we become a very biblically illiterate society. Do you know that in America, 88% of Americans own a Bible? In fact, the average household has 4.4 Bibles. But last year, less than 50% of Christians actually read from the Bible. Everybody's got a Bible. We just spend so little time in the Bible. And this is where, as you look at the history and the formation of our nation, we were people that spent a lot of time on the Word of God. Even the least religious people knew the Bible. We were a nation based on the principles of the Word of God. In fact, after, after Franklin had this time where, where, where he said, we need to take time, we need to pray, George Washington identifies what they did. He says they took three days off and they went to church for three days. The church they went to was the church of the Reverend William Rogers. William Rod Rogers led them in prayer, fasting, and Bible study for three days. After three days, they come back. It's now been five weeks since they started. And when they came back, the founding fathers, actually some of the, the constituents who were there talked about how, how the entire atmosphere changed. Jonathan Dayton. He says, you know, we got back and, and the whole mood, the whole atmosphere was just different. He said, what, what used to be sources of division, now we were unified. And they just talk on and on about how God really helped that. Well, what's interesting is after they got together and could get nothing done and accomplished, within six weeks from that prayer, fasting, and Bible study, they put together the most successful document in the history of the world. No constitution has lasted longer than our constitution. And by the way, a lot of people today argue the founding fathers were atheists, agnostics, deists. They were religious. We have a godless constitution because it doesn't talk about Christianity and the Bible in there. You really only can think it's a godless constitution if, number one, you don't know the constitution, or number two, you don't know the Bible. Because if you know the constitution and the Bible, what's amazing is you see things in the constitution that came directly from the Bible. Ideas that well, you, we didn't come up with the constitution. God came up with them. In fact, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, and George Washington all said, because of Jeremiah 17, 9, we have the separation of powers. Well, there are so many things in the Constitution that are directly from the Bible. The problem is most Americans don't know the Constitution and most Christians don't know the Bible. That's why we have a problem. Well, when you look back in history, it's pretty amazing to see how much the Bible really did impact and influence our nation. In fact, President Andrew Jackson identified this is what makes America different. He said, the Bible is the rock upon which our republic rests. So what's the foundation of America? Andrew Jackson said it's the Bible. That is what we base what we do in America off of is the Bible. Well, this is what used to be largely understood. that has been really forgotten. President Zachary Taylor, I think, explained it really well. Zachary Taylor said, the Bible is the best of books. I wish it were in the hands of everyone. It is indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions. He said, if you want to be safe and you want longevity, you've got to have the Bible. And by the way, then he explained why we need that in America this is what he said. He said, a free government cannot exist without religion and morals. And there cannot be morals without religion, nor religion without the Bible. Now you just think about this concept. In America, we want freedom. That is what our nation is based on, is freedom. But if you give freedom to immoral people, what do they do? Immoral things. So the only way freedom works is with moral people. How do you have moral people? Through religion. Well, how do you have religion? Through the Bible. You have a president of the United States explaining the only way we will ever be free is through the Bible. This is what we used to understand. And by the way, this is why he explained that especially should the Bible 
be placed in the hands of the young. It is the best school book in the world. I would that all of our people were brought up under the influence of that holy book. He says, this is the book that every kid needs to be reading. And by the way, at that time, the Bible was a textbook. The Bible was a textbook all the way up through the early and mid-1900s. For hundreds of years, we used the Bible as a textbook. In fact, the Bible was the very first textbook we ever used in America. That was our primary. Well, this is what he says. He says, look, every kid, every kid needs to read the Bible. Now, it's a little different than what we think today or than what many people tell us, what, what the ACLU would tell us, what the Supreme Court has told us, but it's not the way it used to be. It used to be we understood the value, the impact, the significance of the Bible. In fact, Dr. Benjamin Rush, he was considered the father of public schools under the Constitution. He started five universities. Three of them still exist today. He started the first academic education for women, the first academic education for African American. Uh, the guy really was remarkable on so many levels. But one of the things he did when we became a nation in 1789, he wrote a series of essays for schools. And one of his essays he wrote in 1791, it's called The Bible in Schools. And he listed 12 reasons why we could never take the Bible out of schools. And he talked about all the detrimental things that would occur if we ever stopped teaching kids the Bible. Now, the father of public schools said the one thing that public schools better make sure they do is teach the Bible. Because if they don't teach the Bible, they're going to have all kinds of problems. Interesting. I feel like that might help today. Well, you know... Fisher Ames is a, another founding father. He was one of the guys who was a framer of the Bill of Rights. In fact, he wrote the wording of the First Amendment that went before the House when they voted on, on what that was. He's the one that wrote the wording. Now, today people argue that the First Amendment is what has given us the separation of church and state. Well, it, it, it doesn't, by the way. It's nowhere in any official original government document. But he's the one that wrote the First Amendment as it was presented before the House. Well, he then probably knows what the First Amendment's about. Well, he wrote an essay in 1801, and in this essay, he talked about schools were getting new textbooks into the classroom. And he says, look, I'm not against new textbooks. He says, but, but the concern I have is the more textbooks we add to the classroom, the more time has to be spent on those textbooks. And the more time we spend on those textbooks, the less time can be spent on the Bible. So his solution was, if you want to add new textbooks, take time away from math or science or English, but don't take time away from the Bible. He says, as long as we don't take time away from the Bible, add as many new textbooks as you want. That's the guy that gave us the First Amendment, who did the wording in the house, and he's saying, hey, as long as we keep the, the Bible as a primary thing in public schools, we can do whatever else we want as long as the Bible's number one. That's pretty significant. In fact, the U.S. Supreme Court in 1844, case Vidal versus Girard's executors, the U.S. Supreme Court gave a unanimous decision where they explained that public schools were required to teach the Bible. They said if a public school doesn't want to teach the Bible, they have to become a private school because a private school can teach anything they want. But if they're going to be a public school, they have got to, required to teach the Bible in their schools in America. Now you just think about how far we have come from the day when the U.S. Supreme Court said you have to teach the Bible or you can't be a public school. We are the exact opposite today. And by the way, that happened in 1963. There was a dual decision, Abington Ship and Murray Curlett, where the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the Bible was unconstitutional in schools. Now, it's a little ironic when the guys that wrote the Constitution put the Bible in schools, because they probably knew what the Constitution was about, and they're the ones that did it. But the U.S. Supreme Court said we can't do that. By the way, when the U.S. Supreme Court said the Bible couldn't be in schools, when they delivered that ruling, they cited a psychologist who had come in and testified as an expert witness. The expert witness they cited in their decision, this is what that psychologist said about the Bible. If portions of the New Testament were read without explanation, they could be and had been psychologically harmful to the child. This was why we took the Bible out of schools, because if a kid were to read the Bible, it could cause psychological brain damage. You got to be kidding me. 
Now, by the way, this is what blows me away. It says the New Testament. Now, had they said the Old Testament, there's a few places I'd have to give them. Yeah, you're right. That, that, that could be bad. There's a few moments where, oh, yeah, yeah, I, you're right. There's, there's some rated R parts of the Bible. But you think about the New Testament. The only, the only most graphic thing that happens in the New Testament is the crucifixion of the Savior of the world. That's the most graphic thing. That, but they said the New Testament's what's the problem. This is what's crazy. But because of that, Dr. Benjamin Rush explained what would, what would happen if we ever remove the Bible from schools. And here's what he said about the Bible, first of all. He said, the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in its present state than any other book in the world. So if we want to really understand how this world works, read your Bible. But this is what he said about education. He said, the great enemy of salvation of man, in my opinion, never invented a more effectual means of extinguishing Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind that it was improper to read the Bible in school. He says, you know, that the devil's best strategy he ever came up with was by trying to convince people the Bible shouldn't be in schools. That's amazing. See, the founding fathers understood exactly what this battle was. And by the way, Benjamin Rush explained why it's a problem, not just that, that we remove the Bible from schools, but, but the significance of kids not knowing the Bible. Here's what he said. He said, the Bible when not read in schools is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. See, we used to understand that most of the habits you learn, you learn when you're young. It's a little hard to teach an old dog new tricks. You can do it. It just takes a lot more work. He explained, if we're not giving this to kids when they're young, it's going to be real hard for them to get it when they're older. Do you know, because we now have an entire generation that's grown up without the Bible in schools, we struggle with biblical illiteracy, even among Christians. We don't know the Bible very well anymore. But it goes back because we didn't have it when we were growing up. And this is what used to make America very different. And this is something that we have to get back to understanding the value significance of the Word of God. One of the things that Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul explained to Timothy that all Scripture has given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for proof, for instruction, for correction, and, or for correction, for instruction and righteousness. Paul explained that this is where we get the idea that we have the inerrant, inspired Word of God. That God's Word is true and we believe everything it says. But in verse 17, Paul explained why God has given us this word. He says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The reason we have the word of God is because it prepares us for every area, aspect, avenue of life. And I want to emphasize this word at the bottom, every. The word of God applies to every single thing we do. And the problem is for a lot of us as Christians, we don't really know how to apply the word to everything. In fact, we've bought into this notion of the separation of church and state, which the U.S. Supreme Court boldly presented. And so as Christians, we've learned to compartmentalize our faith. That, that, that Christianity is really for our spiritual life, but it doesn't get involved in medicine and education and, and business and politics and law. They're two different things. And here's the notion. As Christians, we've divided the spiritual and the secular. But my question is, can you show me biblically where God has called us to do that? It's nowhere in the Bible. And this is what Paul warned us in Romans 12. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world be shaping the way you do and operate and think. We're supposed to go to the Word of God. And the Word of God teaches us that the Bible applies to every single thing we do. Now, if the Bible applies to everything we do, what that means is we ought to be turning to the Bible for direction in, in everything in life. Let me give you a fun little challenge. When you go home throughout this next week, when you see a news story, Think about how the Bible applies. What is the biblical guidelines? And, and this is what used to make America different. We all knew the Bible. We knew what the Bible said. We did what the Bible said. Today, most Christians struggle. So just a fun homework project. Look at the news. And by the way, let me just give you a few examples. This is something, that the, the National Defense Authorization Act, the defense bill, this happens every single year. When it came out this year, 
The, the White House said there was, and by the way, the defense bill, uh, our military is funded year to year. And the defense bill is what allows for how many troops we can have and how many tanks and how many planes and how many vessels. This is where that all comes from. When this came out this year, the White House said there was something in the defense bill they objected to. Now, what in the world could they have objected to in the defense bill? What they said was they objected because the defense bill guaranteed rights of conscience for chaplains. And what the argument was, was actually the guy that helped do this was Randy Forbes, really strong Christian guy from Virginia, congressman. And he said, I want to make sure that, that Christian chaplains are not forced to perform homosexual weddings if it goes against their conviction. And the White House says, we don't care what their convictions are. They work for us. They have to do what we tell them. And so in this bill, they were trying to protect the rights of conscience. Now, before you form an opinion, very important, you need to know what the Bible says. Because as Christians, we're quick to have opinions, and it's not always biblical. You want to make sure your opinion is always biblical. So the first question you ought to ask is, what does the Bible say? Do you know the Bible addresses the issue of the rights of conscience? 30 times in the New Testament alone, it talks about the rights of conscience. And God says, I believe in them, I value them, I want them protected. Well, the Bible is real clear on this issue. So as you see a news story, you go, okay, well, that's not what God said. So you know what opinion to have because you know what the Bible says. See, as Christians, we got to get back to knowing what the Bible says. Here's another example, by the way, and, and there's just a few examples. Uh, another example from the news. This, this seems to happen every single year, too, where we're arguing in Congress over, over spending and, and well, all these different bills that are coming up. And two years ago, we had the fiscal cliff, and it seems like we're always arguing and, and, and dealing with these money issues. Well, let's just break this down. The fiscal cliff, for example, when, when we were talking about the fiscal cliff, it was made up of three primary issues. It was made up of debt, taxes, and the deficit. Now, if those are the three issues, and the question is, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible speak about debt or taxes or the deficit? Every single one of them. So as Christians, we had to turn to the Bible and know exactly what opinion we should have based on what the Bible says. You look at debt. You know the Bible teaches us that God doesn't want us in debt. In fact, God told the Israelites that you will lend to many nations, but not borrow from any because your finances are so secure. That's where God wants us to be. Do you know what it says in Proverbs that the borrower is servant to the lender? God doesn't want us to be subject to people. God wants us to operate in freedom, but that means you have to be stability or have financial stability in your finances. Well, you know, as a nation, we are racking up debt like crazy. I mean, like crazy. Do you know who owns the majority of America's debt? China. Now you think about that. An atheistic, communistic country that we have just subjected ourselves under and they control the purse strings? That's not a place we want to be. Well, then we ought to be working real hard to get out from under that. See, as Christians, we ought to know exactly what we ought to do because we know what the Bible says. See, the Bible talks about the sons of Issachar. They were men who understood the times and knew what to do. Well, sometimes we, we see what's happening in the times. If you don't know what the Bible says, you don't know what we should do. And this is where as Christians, you got to get back to what the Bible says. If you look at the issue of taxes, the Bible, by the way, deals a lot with taxes. Some taxes the Bible is actually in favor of, many the Bible is against. The idea of the estate tax, also known as an inheritance tax or a death tax, depending on what state you live in. A death tax is where if someone dies, the government can confiscate or have them penalize up to 55% of their estate in taxes. My grandfather has a ranch or had a ranch. He died this last December. And upon his death, we had to deal with some of these issues. Now, you think about this. If the government can tax you 55% of the estate, when my grandfather died, well, we don't have the value of 55% of the estate in the bank account. So how do I have to pay the government for my grandfather's death? I got to sell his ranch just so I can pay the government for his death. Now, obviously, you should be thinking that doesn't sound right because it's not. The Bible teaches very clearly about 
the inheritance and the full inheritance, the total inheritance. In fact, in Proverbs, it says that a good man leaves an inheritance not to his children, but also his children's children. The government stepped in and they're trying to prevent my grandfather and my father from being able to do what God told them makes him a good man. Well, then as Christians, we ought to be going, okay, that's a terrible idea. We should not. And by the way, that started under FDR. It was an idea of how he wanted to pay off for World War II. It was an idea of how to get out from under the burden of the world or of World War II taxes. Under this administration, they just made that a permanent law. Federal law is the estate tax. Well, well, that's a very unbiblical tax. You also look at something like capital gains tax. Capital gains tax, if you have investments, based on how much money you make on your investments, you pay tax on that. You know, Jesus taught two parables where he taught that you actually reward the productive. You don't punish the productive. What a novel concept. Now, we could, I, I was an economics guy in college, so we can talk about this if, if you need help understanding. I love to talk about this. But it's real simple. However, we don't have to go to economics. Let's just go to the Bible. Because God's ways only work every single time. So if we know what God's Word says, we got the solution. You look at something like progressive taxes. A progressive tax system is where the more money someone makes, the higher tax bracket they're in. And we always hear these arguments, well, the rich should pay their fair share. Let me ask you this. What kind of tax system did God promote? It's called a tithe. It's 10%. And a lot of people argue, well, the rich should have to pay more. And I feel like I should just explain percentages for a second. <laughs> if you pay 10% and you only make $100, you pay $10. If you pay 10% and you make a million dollars, you pay $100,000. Well, the rich should pay more. They do. <laughs> I don't understand how this is confusing. But you know what the Bible teaches is that God is no respecter of persons and God doesn't show favoritism to anybody. God did not tax Abraham more than somebody else because Abraham had more. God didn't tax Job more than somebody else because Job had more. God required the same from everybody because God's no respecter of persons. So you start looking. This is the idea of what's called a flat tax. Well, if, if we just turn to the Bible, see what the Bible says. It's amazing how much the Bible speaks to because the Bible equips us for everything we do in life. And this is what we used to do in America. We used to turn to the Bible and see what the Bible said. In fact, even with issues we're dealing with, the Muslim Brotherhood. We, we have recently said that, that we as Americans are going to give the Muslims our old military surplus. Now, this is staggering because the Muslims have said that they believe America is a great Satan and Israel is a little Satan. If you're not familiar, Israel is a very small little nation. They only have 13 million people. They're surrounded by 14 Muslim nations that have 1.9 billion people. Israel's outnumbered 146 to 1 from the Muslim nations. And we have just told the Muslim Brotherhood that we are going to give them all our old U.S. military gear, our Abrams military tanks, our F-16s. What in the world are we doing? Well, before you form an opinion, as simple as it might seem, before you form an opinion, we ought to be saying, what does the Bible say? You know, I, I love the Bible. I try to read it at least once a year, um, and I've read it dozens of times. You know, I have yet to find a verse where it says that God will bless those that oppose Israel. I, I, I haven't found that one yet. Then this should have been the biggest no-brainer for Christians. Every single Christian should have stood up and gone, no, 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 we cannot afford to do that. Because we are putting ourselves in a place where God cannot bless us. Because we've put ourselves in direct opposition to what God said he wanted. But by the way, you look at things, even like gender bender. This is a big deal happening around America where, hey, if, if, if boys want to be girls, girls want to be boys, transgender, playing different teams. I mean, this is a big deal. It is ridiculous. But you know, the word of God really does speak to every single issue. Because you look at what the Bible says. You know, God told the Israelites that I want your men to dress like men and act like men. And I want your women to dress like women and act like women. 
Even this issue God dealt with. There's not a single issue that you can't find God giving guidance to. And this is what we have to understand, even something like, like this gun issue. Chicago jumped in and said, you know what, I know how to solve all gun crimes. Now, that's a little ironic that Chicago is going to tell us how to solve gun problems because they have the highest gun murder rate in America. So for them to say, hey, I know how to solve this problem, it's like the equivalent of someone that's been divorced 17 times giving you marriage counseling. <laughs> like, you're just not my top vote for this. If I, if I need to get divorced, you're the one I'm talking to. But to stay married, no, you, no, no thank you. Chicago is, is trying to suggest this. Now, what's interesting is, is if you look at the Bible, you know God really did give guidance on how to solve this gun issue because the Bible identified what the real problem is. Jesus in Matthew 7 says, out of the heart of man proceeds evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, murders, and wickedness. All these evil things come from within. The problem is not the capacity of the magazine. The problem is not the assault rifle. The problem is the heart of man. And this is why you go back to the very beginning. The very first murder we ever saw in the Bible, when Cain murdered Abel, you know what's interesting? When, when, when Cain murdered his brother, God didn't have to come out and say, you know what? I wanted you guys to, to, to be able to use rocks, but you just abuse them. So from now on, no more rocks. It's a rock band, and, and, and you can't. How absurd would that be? Why? Because the problem was not the rock. The problem was not what was in Cain's hand. It's what was in his heart. This is where, as believers, we got to understand. It's real simple. This is not complicated. But we have tried to make it complicated when really God gave us really simple guidelines. It's not very confusing. But you know, Dr. Benjamin Rush explained, if we ever took the Bible out of schools, he said, we are going to spend all our time and money in punishing crimes. And, and, and we've taken so little pains to prevent them. If we would just teach kids the Bible, we could solve all of these problems. Yeah. Do you know, if you look at violent crimes before 1963, when we took the Bible out of schools, violent crime was always below the population growth rate. After we took the Bible out of schools, violent crime exploded by 694%. Interesting. It seems there might be a connection. This is what we understood. If we will teach kids the Bible, see, this is what we have to get back to understanding. The Word of God really does apply to everything we do. And as Christians, we got to get back to knowing what it says. Now, let me just ask this question. Why don't we know as much of what the Bible says? How have we gotten to the place? We used to know the Bible really well, apply it to everything, and we don't really seem to do that much anymore. I think one of the problems is even our, something as simple as our understanding of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is where Jesus said, you guys know it, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. We know this pretty well, at least you should. I, I, th I think we do. But most Christians, when they hear this, the first thing that we think of is this is our evangelical mandate. We got to go get people saved. What's interesting is Jesus didn't call us in this verse to get people saved. He called us to teach them everything that I've commanded you. Now, I'm not trying to be a heretic. I'm a fan of salvation. We all need to be saved. But here's what Jesus taught. He said, if you teach them everything, what's that called? That's called discipleship. It's different. What we have done in the modern church is we have made salvation the finish line instead of the starting block of the race. And what Jesus taught was that, okay, now that you are saved, now run the race with perseverance that is set before you. Now you crucify the flesh and the sinful desires and you walk in the spirit. Now old things pass away, all things become new. See, there's a process. And what we've done is we focused on salvation and we've forgotten everything that Jesus taught. But Jesus said, you teach them everything that I've commanded you. If we just started teaching everything Jesus commanded, you know, Jesus in, in Matthew 19, he taught a parable or a principle on no-fault divorce. That divorce wasn't God's idea. But do you know right now, Christians have the highest divorce rate in America? Apparently, we don't know what Jesus said very well. 
And, and 88% of Christians that have gotten divorced got divorced after they were saved. So they got saved and then got, so Jesus really didn't help their life. No, he would if you applied the principles of the word of God. See, the problem is we don't know everything that Jesus taught. You look at something like Luke 19, Jesus taught you reward the profit makers. This would be a novel concept in America. I'm not, I'm not a rich man. I want to be one day, it'd be fun. Like, Lord, you can bless me with that. That's, that's a burden I will carry, right? But right now, it's unbelievable I got married, and because I got married, I'm now in a higher tax bracket. Do you know, for my wife and I, we would be in a lower tax bracket if we were divorced but lived together? What are we rewarding in America? This is so crazy. See, if you just looked at what Jesus taught, people that do it the right way, they should be rewarded. That's what the Bible teaches. You look at Matthew 20. Do you know Jesus taught against minimum wage? He actually taught in favor of employer-employee contracts, where the owner gets to decide what he wants to do with his own money. And a lot of people today, see, we live in such an entitlement generation. We think somebody owes us something. Well, well, they should pay me something. Here's the bottom line. If you're not getting good money where you work, go find another job. And if nobody else will pay you more than what you're making where you are, you're probably not worth more than what you're making where you are. I mean, let let me just speak in love. Because the Bible says that each man was given according to his ability. So if you want more, increase your ability. And as you increase your ability, you make more. And that's the bottom line. But see, we live in a generation where we want someone to give us something we didn't work for and didn't earn, and we're not bettering ourselves. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, I don't know, your your employer has the right to do that. In fact, in John 8, do you know the reason we have due process in America? In in the Federal Practice and Procedures, Volume 30, there's 100 pages of the reason we have due process in America is because of the Bible. So many things. See, if we just look at what Jesus taught, simply what the Bible teaches— Christians would think a whole lot differently than what we do. We got to get back to knowing what the Bible says. And I want to close with with a thought from President John Quincy Adams. President John Quincy Adams, he talked about the Bible. Here's what he said. He said, the Bible, when duly read and meditated on, is of all books in the world that which contributes most to make men good, wise, and happy. He explained, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated upon as the Bible. The first and almost the only book deserving such universal recommendation is the Bible. I have myself for many years made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year. And I've endeavored to read it with the same spirit which I now recommend to you. That is, with the intention and desire that it may contribute to my advance in wisdom and virtue. He said, I read the Bible every single year, but I read it for two reasons. To increase my wisdom and my virtue. Wisdom is the way we think and virtue is the way we live. He says, I, I read the Bible every year so that I think differently, so I live differently. See, this is where as Christians, we got to get back to reading the Bible. We've got to get back to reading the Bible. Every single problem we're dealing with in culture, God gives us the answer for. But if you don't know what the answer is, it's hard for you to apply the answers you don't know. We have got to get back to the Bible. Elias Budino, I'm going to close with Elias Budino. Elias Budino was uh, one of the major leaders in, in the early revolution days, founding father. He was the president of Congress. He actually is the one that signed the Peace Treaty of Paris, um, or he was the president of Congress when that was signed. Um, he, he was a member, uh, one of the framers of the Bill of Rights. Um, and actually had several things to do with the wording of it. But Elias Boudinot started the American Bible Society when he was 77 years old. That society still exists today. They give over 100 million or give away a million Bibles every single year. Um, when, when he started the American Bible Society, one of the things he explained, he says, look, I, I've been reading the Bible for over half a century. I read it all the time, he says, and I still don't ever take it up that I'm not learning something new. And this is the bottom line as Christians. So often... We don't dedicate ourselves to reading the Bible because we've read it before. Well, I know what it says. He says, no, no, no. Every time I pick it up, God shows me something I hadn't seen before. And it's because God and his wisdom and depth, the Bible says it's unsearchable. 
You cannot get all the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Every time you read it, you find something new. So the challenge is we got to get back to reading the Bible. If you've never read the Bible cover to cover, dedicate this year. You know what? I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover. If you've already read it before, read it again. Because this is the key to success. In fact, this is what God told Joshua in Joshua 1, chapter 8. Constantly think about my word every day and every night, so you will be sure to obey it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. See, the keys, the keys of prosperity and success are not as complicated as sometimes we make it. Know God's word and do what God says. You'll be prosperous and successful. If you guys want to know more, we have a website, wallbuilders.com, or we have some product. The Founders Bible actually shows the links of how the Bible directly impacted so much of early America, all kinds of product. But our website, we have a lot of stuff that's free, downloadable stuff. You can go and see it if you want to know more about our nation. But the bottom line challenge for us as Christians is we got to get back to the Word of God because it is up to us to uphold God's standards. Thank you guys so much. Praise the Lord. Come on, put your hands together. Thank you, Timothy. Praise God. We're going to go ahead and receive an offering for wall builders today to help them in their effort of rebuilding the walls that have been broken down. They got the name of their, of their organization from the book of Nehemiah. And uh, we are wholehearted believers and supporters of wall builders and so thankful that you're here with us this morning as well as tonight. You don't want to miss that six o'clock. If you want to participate in blessing and being a part of, uh, of their ministry and sowing a seed into their ministry, you want a record of your giving, just go ahead and lift your hand. They'll bring an envelope. Making out a check, make it out to KC. We will send them one check, amen, for the entirety of what comes in this morning as well as tonight, we want to bless them. And I learned a long time ago that a financial seed, well, let me just say it this way, a seed never changes the soil. You know, we planted some grass out at our house. Leila came and checked it out and said we should do some oil, soil samples. I think there's something deficient with my soil. Needs some help, needs some, needs some fertilizer, needs some different things, amen. This ministry, Wall Builders, is good soil for, for many, many years, amen. Ministry of integrity and honesty. And just so thankful for you. You sow a seed into the ministry of uh, Wall Builders. And it's going to bring forth the harvest. I believe some 30, some 60, even 100-fold. I maybe wouldn't mind 100-fold. See, what's amazing is... You might not have the, the gifting that they have to be able to communicate the, the way communicate, but you can actually partner with them. And in the end, in the, in the last day, you can actually receive a reward for what they've done because you sowed into it. Amen. They, they're going to go to places that maybe you won't go. But as we give today, we're going to see a, a great harvest come in. So thankful for your ministry. Be sure to thank your dad and, and your grandfather too, who's gone before you. Amen. He's in heaven. We see him later, huh? Ushers, would you come, please? Father, we thank you for the ministry of wall builders and uh, Timothy Barton, God of the legacy. Lord, that this family is even leaving sowing into America and even the nations. Lord, as we have heard the word this morning and even the call to return, to be biblically literate. We sow a seed into their ministry, but we 
we make covenant this morning. We make a commitment before you to know your word. Come on, some of you, some of you really probably need to repent. Not teaching your kids, not, not, not really understanding, growing in the word. But God, we commit from this day forward, God, to go deeper. Your word is truth. Your word is a lamp unto a feet, a light upon our path. Your word is like a hammer, breaks a rock to pieces. God, may we know your word. May we teach your word. Help us, Lord, to commit ourselves to discipleship. Come on, ask God to help you. You need to commit to discipleship. I've said it before, but how can we come? On Sunday morning, get an hour and a half service and go watch six hours of TV, average male every day, six hours of TV. Tell me who's discipling us. It's the TV. Oh Lord, we commit to discipleship. Come on, just if that's, if that's real for you, commit yourself to discipleship. Lord, we commit to the next level of discipleship. I thank you, Lord, for our brother Timothy and all that you're doing in and through wall builders. Bless the gift and the giver multiplied many times over in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers, go ahead. you stand up on your feet after you sown your seed after you give now we've taken communion I trust that you've, if you weren't right with God that you were made right with him then but I'm also mindful we've got people online that people might have signed on in the middle of service it's a matter where you are in your walk with the Lord if you need to recommit your life to him if you've drifted away or if you've never given your heart to Jesus, won't you do it right now? Just pray with me right out loud. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for rising again from the grave for me. Forgive me of all of my sin. And come into my heart. Come into my life and be my Lord. Be my Savior. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Amen. Let me pray for you. Holy Spirit, I pray your touch. Fill. Bless heal. Break every bondage. Break every chain. We thank you for what you've done today. Fill each and every one. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you reach your hand across and take someone by the hand? Right across the aisles, take someone by the hand. Thank you for coming this morning. We hope to see you tonight. Amen. Wednesday night. Ministry to the whole family, 7 o'clock. Let me just bless you and we'll close. Father, thank you. Bless your people. Cause your face to shine upon them. Lift up your countenance towards them. Be gracious to them. Keep them and give them peace. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. God bless you. We'll hope to see you tonight, 6 o'clock. Go ahead and get some of those pumpkin patch flyers and posters. Help us reach the community. God bless you.